Listener Production. Everyone relax, this is Willosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast, Willosophy with Will Anderson. I've said that more times than I normally say it in the introduction to this one. It's my first one back after a couple of months. I was just warming up again, giving it a little stretch. I have a great guest today and I'm very excited about today's guest because they are someone who I don't really know that much about. They are someone who is new to Uh, my world and my radar and um, I'm really looking forward to getting to know them as you get to know them on this show today. So uh, this is how the show starts. Uh, They know this is coming. They've heard it before. Uh, (laughs) Who are you? Hello. um, I am Lou. (laughs) Oh, my last name is Wall. That's it. (laughs) That's it. Lou Wall. Got the job done. (laughs) That's it. That's all you need to know. (laughs) <laughs> Three Triple L's in L, total. Let's go. That's all you yeah. need. Yeah, I mean, it feels offensive to all one L. Will Anderson to come on with three L's yeah. in such a short amount of time. I thought too. something I was mean, lacking on the pod, and I said, "I'm here to fix it." Yeah, the L ratio. I've got seven <laughs> letters, and I've managed to jam L in three times. Let's go. <laughs> uh, lovely to have you here, Lou Wall. Thank you for. Um, how do you describe yourself if somebody asks you who you are? Oh, it's definitely dependent on the person. Um, To you, uh, to people who aren't Uber drivers, I'd describe myself as um, a comedian, I guess. And where does comedy start for you? Tell me, let's let's go back and find out a little bit about the Lou Wall story. I'm going to ask you the questions that I'm just curious about, which is, so when, how, why, comedy, explain. (laughs) A great question. <laughs> oh, I don't even know if I know the answer. No, I do. I was in um, year 12 um, and I went to Monero High School, a little town called Cooma, which is in the Snowy Mountains in like mm-hmm. regional New South Wales, but fuck nowhere, but we love it. Um, and uh, th- this guy came down from Canberra and he ran a comedy workshop at the local library. And oh, I was yeah. like, oh, I'll do that. Because I kind of just did everything in town because there wasn't much to do. So I signed up for it. And it was, I kid you not, it was me, two farmers and like one guy from like the local theater group. And then we did the workshop. And then at the end, they're like, oh, we're going to do a comedy show now. Um, mm. Prepare. I think we did 10 minutes of material, which now I think that is crazy. <laughs> so well they only had four acts they right, only had four so acts to- truly we had to fill it out for the paying yeah. people of Kuma um, and so the next weekend I just did my first 10 minute set in the Kuma theatre Kuma little theatre which is like a glorified kind of sheep shed um, with some beautiful red curtains um, and I loved it it was so fun um, just performing to What like, were you talking about? Like, I mean, so yeah, who was the audience and what were you talking about? The audience was essentially everyone my mum could gather. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she was like, <laughs> she was way more nervous than me. I remember her just like freaking out. Mm. And so the audience was just like the, the whole town pretty much. So just like family, friends, like everyone knows everyone there. Um, so it was really warm. Like you kind of couldn't stuff up really. 
Um, but people See, did. <laughs> you, grew, you grew up in a very different small community to the one that I grew up in because I also grew up in a tiny place. And I think in my community, if that had happened, everyone would have come for a lynching, right? No, like- <laughs> no, but here's the thing. The reason that I wasn't out for a lynching was because it was all men and then this 17-year-old girl just chilling, right? Oh, yeah. So they uh-huh. were ready to take down everyone else. And then as soon as I came on, they were like, yeah, we support the arts, which was the perfect setup for me. <laughs> so I absolutely used that privilege. I straightened my hair. I was like, let's go. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it was so much. I think I was talking about like in the kind of way that a lot of comics do, just like identity shit. I think I was talking about Mm -hmm. how tall I was. I think I made jokes about my dad wearing Crocs or something. Um, Just like really basic first comedian stuff. And then I, I kind of left comedy for ages. And then I got back into it after I finished uni. And I couldn't get a job. And so I was like, well, (laughs) this looks lucrative. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, the funny thing is that I think when I made the decision to be a comedian, if I were outside of me, if I were not me and I was giving me advice, I probably would have gone, well, this this is a little risky. Like it's not, you know, the Melbourne Comedy Festival is like three years old or four years old when I'm thinking about this. Nobody knew. I can't say that I was like, oh, no, no, this is going to be huge. This will become an entire industry. There'll be so many employable jobs. You'll get to travel the world. Like I absolutely (laughs) did not know that there were gold in them, their hills, right? And so now there is like genuinely for a talented person, you can go, okay, well, there is a comedy industry there. Like it does exist. I see people who are comedians who work in radio and television and write things and like that is visible to someone of your age. So did you genuinely think, oh yeah, okay, here is an industry and a a career I could pursue? I think actually what, because I went to uni and I studied, lol, I studied acting Um, Mm -hmm. down in Melbourne. And so when I got out, I really wanted to make work. I wanted to be employed. And actually, like, the theatre industry is, like, incredibly, like, class-driven in that you need to have money to put on a show. And stand-up is, like, one of the most accessible forms of art in that you can go into any pub, you pay five bucks. Like, even at the festivals, like, the most you're paying is, what, like, 50 bucks for a ticket to see someone's hour. Like, it's so accessible to both audiences and like artists alike. And I really wanted to start, I was really impatient. I wanted to start making art and stuff. Um, and so I kind of just saw it as like the poor man's um, theatre making. <laughs> and mm-hmm. then I went and I went into it from there. But I obviously like knew people, I kind of saw it as like, I'll do comedy for a bit and then I'll become Cave Blanchett. <laughs> but <Yeah>. then <laughs> I realised I was, you know, a little, you know, more Mr Bean vibes. <laughs> Is there a point where, like, I mean, does that dream continue? Because, of course, people could do all sorts of things as performers, you know. There's been plenty of comedians who identify probably as comedians who've made really successful transitions to be serious actors. So it wouldn't be that unusual that somebody who wanted to be a serious actor could go and do comedy and could go back to serious acting. Does that still burn or is there a sense of, oh, no, I I consider myself a clown now? I think the dream still burns so strong, but like realistically, no, I know now that I'm so shit at acting. <laughs> and I'm like, that was ne- like every- from the outside, everyone would have just been like, this is never uh-huh. a possibility. 
Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, there is a difference between being good at acting or performing as a comedian. Like, you know, compared to, you know, you're like, oh, no, no, Lou's fantastic. Like all these <laughs> theatre skills. Like, yeah, big fish, small pond. This is where you belong. Get around some other actors and you're like, nah, doesn't stand out as much, does it? Absolutely, absolutely. I was giving amateur theatre vibes. And I think I, I was always just like, I want to be a transformative actor. And then every time I'd be on stage, they'd just uh-huh. be like, that's fucking Lou. Like, I was just... <laughs> <laughs> embarrassingly myself. Uh, so there is a difference between the two, clearly, which is that the actor tends to imbue, like, not all actors, of course, there's all sorts of different types of actors, but there's that sense of losing yourself in a character. Even the most famous stories of your Daniel Day-Lewis's of the world who will become method to the very characters that they play and they live them and they imbue them and it's part of their process that you have to refer to him in character even if you run into him at the catering table like becoming someone else whereas often comedy and again oversimplification but can be seen about that who are you where's your comedic truth like where's that authenticity of like who you are on stage and what it is that you want to say so often to me they feel like they can be very different things do they feel like different things to you yeah absolutely they feel like worlds apart but I look back at it and I'm like oh, of course I would have mistaken the two when mm. what I really just loved was kind of stage time and attention <laughs> but um, <laughs> but yeah I can see I think they are completely worlds apart and I never really had I never really respected acting as a craft like all my friends would mm. be there getting like getting there 40 minutes early and like laying in semi-supine and dropping in. And I'd just be like, fuck, I hope I remember the words. Like, get me a wig. <laughs> like, I always felt like I acted better in a wig, like shit like that. And I'm like, I should have known yeah. then. <laughs> like, uh-huh. <laughs> Early signs. Early for sure. signs. So, okay. All right. So where are you? Are you in Melbourne when you finish university and decide to do comedy? Is that like a Melbourne thing? Yeah. That. Uh, so I was in, I was in Melbourne. I think one of my first, jobs I got was yeah so I finished at Melbourne Uni finished at VCA and then I um started hosting this improv night and there was like three different improv troops and they'd kind of do like long form improvisation and at the start of each night it was at the butterfly club downstairs and there was maybe like I feel like our max audience was like 15 people like most nights it's like three or four people plus like the 12 people from the improv troupe um and I would do like a little song at the start of each show. And then from there, I just started doing more stand-up. I would, I did, I kind of did it the opposite way to normal stand-ups in that I did a festival show my first year out of uni. And then I did one my second year out of uni. And I was like, I'm not a stand-up. I just do festival shows mm-hmm. um, and kind of kept making shows. And then in 2020, I was like, oh, I actually really want to be a stand-up comedian. Um, And so then I started, like, doing gigs and doing rooms. And that's when I actually got good, I think. Before then, I was just making it. Well, what is the difference between – so, look, I I would have a – you know, could talk to you for three hours about (laughs) this, just this one thing, right? But for the sake of the audience who are also listening into this conversation, explain a little bit more to them about what the difference – because they might be thinking, well – that's what I think stand-up comedy is. It's people who do, you know, the festival and do their show at the festival. What do you even mean that there is a difference between those two things? I think I think a lot of stand-ups start by doing um, like a five-minute set in a club 
And then they will work that set over like a couple of years and they'll get more and more material. And then from that material, they'll kind of cobble together a festival show. So everything will be tried and tested. It'll be material that like people have seen all over the, you know, all over the city that they live in. Um, And then their first hour of material will come from that. And for some people, um, they do it quite fast. But I think for most people, it takes maybe like two or three years kind of um, from the point of doing their first gig to the the point of a festival show. And often people um, put a lot of pressure on their debut festival show. Like there's an award for best newcomer and a lot of people are like, oh, I'm only going to do the festival when I'm ready for that and that kind of thing. There's a lot of um, pressure around doing well as your first time. And I kind of work. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? Because none of these awards and things existed when I went through this. I was the... I was the last year before things like Raw even existed so that people would structure their stand-up journey around, you know, this evolution through those systems. By the time Raw was a thing, I was hosting the Raw final, not competing in it. And that's a very different world to be in where there wasn't this at least sense of, well, you know, this is what Hannah Gadsby did, or this is what Reese yeah. Nicholson and people did, or see this it is as what the whatever. Known, like people see it as the known trajectory, and then think it's almost like the only trajectory. Yeah, they say you got to go into Raw, and you got to win Raw, and then you've got to get nominated dec- for best newcomer at the festival, and you've got to do this. Like, there's some sort of like it's like being a doctor or something. You've got to graduate through the, all the different steps. Totally, to, and I like to I crack understand comedy. that. It's, it's, not, it's not an escape room though. Like, no, it's yeah, like yeah. that is a, it's a very limited model. <laughs> if only the person who can follow the one way through can thrive and it's in the fucked, world of comedy. Because only one person can win each year, so everyone's going yeah. for that one. But like I understand it because there's no kind of structure in our industry. I understand mm. people kind of grappling for that and oh, like attaching themselves because it does feel like a lifeline and. Yeah, totally. And you see these amazing comedians that have, you know, done that exact trajectory and you're like, I want that. But I kind of, I did, I did almost the complete opposite in that I wrote my first show. I hadn't shown it to anyone until opening Mm -hmm. night. Absolutely cursed move by me. And it had, it was like very theatrical. I couldn't have done it at club spots. Like maybe I could have done like five minutes of it. But I did that. It was called A Dingo Ate My Baby. It was a show about abortion (laughs) and abortion rights in the country. And I really loved the festival, but I felt very outside of it for a couple of years. I felt very like I was the theatre person, like coming into the comedy world. And then, yeah, it wasn't until Okay, so, yeah. Well, let's not move on from that yet because... (laughs) No, no, I'm I'm just... I'm fascinated by I'm like, let's please gloss over all the theatre kids stuff. (laughs) I know, but no, I think this is so interesting because I like from a creative point of view, I want to ask you this question because you talk about this idea of on the first night you did this show and you had showed it to nobody. And there is part of me that says, you say that as if that's an apology. I'll tell you another person who said that exact same thing to me on this podcast. Ursula Carlson. And Ursula Carlson is one of the biggest stand-up comedians in the world, right? Yeah. And she also conceives of her shows in her own imagination and mind and she writes them. And then the first time she performs them is the first night she does the the tour. You know, she doesn't test it in clubs and she conceives this. I mean, she's obviously worked through that system on the way to getting where she is, but that's how she does her shows. And so – Clearly just, and I shouldn't have to use her as an example just to prove <laughs> this point, but I will because it's such a good and convenient example. And she said exactly the same thing is there's no right way to to do it. And I 
want to ask you a question about creativity because I have like all sorts of thoughts around this and they change all the time. But one of my most recent ones is I grapple with this idea of do we let an audience of people who would never pay to see the show decide what's in the show for people who would actually pay to see the show and would have liked what you went with in the first place, right? Yeah. Like if my audience genuinely share my sense of humor and I want to be my freest and most in touch with my audience, which is what I like to do in comedy is like to have like a night with these people. You know, that's what I like about live comedy, something that can never be replicated again. If I truly want to do that, then surely my initial instincts about what I thought were funny, like I shouldn't go and show it to like a Friday night crowd at the Sydney Comedy Store in 10 minute chunks to say, do you reckon my crowd will like, pay 50 <laughs> yeah. bucks and sit in a theater and if, you know, like, like my stuff will enjoy this? It, so I just want to ask you from a creative point of view, do you feel like, like, you know, your creative process changed when you, you know, changed the way that you started to do shows? That, yeah, that's a really fucking good question. I actually, I completely agree with you because my audience is the girlies and the gays and they are never at a comedy club, you know, like unless it's like specific to Mardi Gras, like they are in bed on TikTok. Um, and <laughs> I actually, you know what, I think I, I think I started doing club stuff and I started doing like circuit stuff because I really wanted to be, to prove to people um, that I was a comedian, right? But still to this day, I will actually not show my shows to anyone until I until I begin. And I will show them only to my best friends in my lounge room. And like, I've recently got management and they're like, do you want to do a trial show? And I'm like, absolutely not. I couldn't think of anything worse. Like I just, <laughs> and I think because my stuff is so like, you know, I, I use a lot of AV and I use a lot of music and stuff. And I, I will like work it up almost like a theater show. Like you don't show anyone until like the opening night. And I used to get really like stressed about that because like, obviously there's like such a dialogue around like testing stuff, making sure it's like good and stuff. But I'm like, if I'm playing the store, I am not doing something that's going to like hit at 45 minutes during my show. You know, like I'm like changing the way I talk. I'm like changing almost everything about myself. But yeah, I, 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 I go back on what I said. I'm the biggest hypocrite. Um, but like, I don't think you have to show people. I don't think you have to test stuff. Or if you are testing it, circuit is not always the right place for it. Right, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying the idea of testing something. Like, I mean, it's a collaboration with your audience eventually or otherwise there's no yeah. point inviting an audience. But <laughs> <laughs> My dream. But, but. <laughs> Just me, baby. <laughs> Okay, so you you talked about that idea of like needing to prove you were a comedian or whatever mm. language it was that you used. What, what did you mean when you said that and why was that of need or value to you? I valued it so highly and simply not a single other person in the world valued it. Like mm. everyone would have called me a comedian from when I did my first festival show, but I kind of had in my head that a comedian – was someone who could do five minutes in a pub. And so I wanted to prove that I could do that to a drunk audience of just men and stuff. And now I look back on it, I was like, I was actually like, as a, you know, a young queer person, I was actually just finding safe spaces. Like I didn't want to be doing like the crazy open mics and stuff because they didn't feel safe for me as a human, let alone as, you know, someone doing comedy. Um, and I felt like I had to change myself for that. But I think, um, oh, fuck, what was the question? The question was, 
Oh no, we were just talking about the idea of like you were you was you were talking about going back to the like the, those days oh, and yeah. what it and, like, was that you prove. were trying to prove. Yeah, and whether indeed you were trying to prove something. You said that the language you used was about needing to prove and yeah, yeah and yeah. as you said like i mean to who like like who is it you know, exactly specifically but we all- it was other mm. open micers it was yeah. and it was men and it was um <laughs> i mean which is a crazy that, thing because i'm literally yeah. talking about like 21 year old boys like making jokes of you know, like i was like i'm gonna Why? find the worst people in society at their worst exactly i was like validate myself on a mission eyes. for incels to be like yeah you're a comedian <laughs> like actually crazy now i think about it <laughs> But I understand that There's, it's old. It's old school, right? Yeah. And yeah. look, we also all feel like we have imposter syndrome. I imagine. Like, are you a person that, in your everyday life, has like a feeling of imposter syndrome, or how do you carry yourself other than through this particular example? I am a bit of a bimbo, so I like kind of fluctuate between intense imposter syndrome and like. I'm the best person in the world. Why am I getting all of the opportunities? Um, which I think is like a lot, like you kind of need to have that confidence to like go up on stage and make people listen to you talking about your own thoughts. Like if you didn't have that, then you're like, what the, what the fuck am I doing? But I definitely get imposter syndrome, but I think I work my ass off. I really like pride myself on my work ethic. And so I think I work hard enough to let my imposter syndrome kind of dissipate as time goes on. Okay. So talk to me about work then, because I'm always interested in people's work processes. And also even just the way you frame that is uh, something that I respond to because there's just this element of like, I think that when you say you can combat imposter syndrome by saying, oh, well, it's okay. I'm just going to do all the work. And, you know, then I can, you know, I can go, you're an idiot, imposter syndrome. But if I don't do all the work, then imposter syndrome gets to win this day. And so what is your work process? When you say you work hard, what do you mean by that? I think I just kind of prepare for every possible outcome. And I do it less now because it's actually toxic and it's fucking mm-hmm. crazy and I drive myself up the wall. But um, I just, I really, I overwrite everything. I overthink everything. I put in as many hours as I can. Like I take my career like so seriously, which is so embarrassing to admit. Like, but <laughs> I just... And I think I've done this for like every aspect of my life. Okay, hang on, wait. Why (laughs) why is it embarrassing to admit that? Like, I mean, in any other industry, if you're like – I can't imagine like, you know, Samantha Kerr, like, you know, playing for the Matildas, like winning some sort of award and being interviewed after the game and goes, well, the truth of it is the reason I scored three goals today is I take my career very seriously and it's embarrassing. It's not embarrassing. It's not. It's what's expected of somebody – in their career in general. So why why is that even an – like, by the way, I know the answer to the question, I think, but why for you in particular do you find that an embarrassing thing to say? I think because, like, on the surface, um, comedy seems like cool people with lots of confidence who are, like, a bit class clowny and could kill a conversation at the pub, you know, having a yarn on stage. 
And for me, it's so embarrassing to be like, I try really hard. (laughs) (laughs) Like I've thought about these sentences, which on stage come off flawlessly Uh and look like I'm doing it in the moment. I work on them for so long. I practice them in my room. And I think it's just like I like comedy. The industry is like mostly full of just like nerds who are now cool, which is why we're also like, fucking crazy but like I think it's just embarrassing because it feels like a career that you should just be able to like wake up in the morning throw on a shirt and jeans and do but the level I mean the amount of time and effort I put into it I'm like I don't want anyone to know that because it's so humbling <laughs> yeah you know on this podcast I obviously talk to people about their life philosophy but I also love to talk to people about what they're comedy philosophy is like do you have like a comedy philosophy i don't it doesn't necessarily need to be something that can be summed up in a you know a pithy sentence or something but like a broad philosophy of what it is that you you try to achieve what what it is that you're trying to do what sort of connection you're trying to make with an audience any of those like do you have like a a prism through which you view your comedic performance that's i I honestly have actually never thought about why i do it that is sad because the next eight questions yeah, are about Jesus. why you <laughs> <laughs> Think quick, bitch, think quick. Oh, no, I think, I know, I think this year I have really been like, oh, I love comedy and not just as a fan, not just as a passion. Like I respect it as something that truly, for Australians especially, is one of the greatest unifiers in this entire world. I've had like a a really fucked year personally, but comedy has truly gotten me through. Like, I think it can bring anyone together. I think it, um, as a, like comedy as a dialogue is a shared thing that, I I think, okay, this is what I'm trying to say. I come from a town where people have very, very different views to me. And I look like a left-wing queer city person, which I am. But I think this year and like throughout the pandemic and like in the rise of all these like crazy conspiracy theories where, you know, our society is definitely like fracturing in a way we kind of haven't seen before. I'm like the thing that for me that unifies everybody is comedy. Like if I can go down the pub and have a yarn with someone and make them laugh, like for me, I'm like that is one of the most powerful things we have in in forming a connection. And so I think in stand up I kind of go into it just being like I hope they clap no I'm kidding I kind of go into it (laughs) just being like um if I can make you know if I can make a cross section of society all laugh at the same thing Uh then I'm you know forming a connection where there wasn't one before yeah okay I love that that's cool so tell me then how do you form that connection with a like you get a group of strangers in a room, mm. like how do you get them all to connect on the one thing? Like how does that work? Honestly, it's never happened before for me. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think, I think I found it recently. I just did the Edinburgh Fringe, which was such a like crazy time in like performing to the strangest most different disparate kind of thinking people. Like I would go out of Edinburgh and like do gigs in like the Scottish countryside. And then I'd come back in and do like a 12 PM circus show to like 200 children (laughs) um, where I can't swear. And then I would do my own show, which has like, you know, my ideal audience of like 20 year old girlies. Um, 
I think it's about, I, I think everyone connects to story, like as like simple as that is, like everyone connects to story and everyone connects to journey and Oh, fuck, I don't even know. Honestly, I'm talking out my ass. I really don't know. Like, I hope I, I can I mean, this talk. whole podcast is about talking out with your ass. We're not going to, like, release a transcript at the end <laughs> of these ideas. I just wanted you to explore it's, it a little with yeah, me and, good, like, no, talk about it. it's good to think it. about. It's coming to, yeah, on Edinburgh, mm. because was that your first time in Edinburgh? Yeah, it was, yeah. And you decided just to throw yourself into doing everything, it sounds like, rather than yeah. like you didn't just say, because I mean, it, for people who don't know, the festival itself, it's the biggest fringe arts festival in the world. Mm. And uh, the comedy component of it alone has like a thousand shows or something, right? And so they're all over the place that they happen all day long, but as well as people doing their own shows, there is a range of, you know, collaborative shows of all different scales and sizes and dimensions and, and whatever there might be. So you did you just go over thinking, I'm going to do it all or did you what was your what why did you go I went because I wanted to see if I was still funny overseas <laughs> like not just and, what, and and did you feel like that was why like why do you like if you why did you not trust the Australian yeah to who though like I mean to who who are you proving yourself to in that situation like Uh, honestly yourself or to like is there other people in the industry is there like a sense of like like I mean why is it not enough to just make Australians laugh and assume that you know you've nailed it the crazy thing is I feel like Australians respect it if you can make people overseas laugh. Like I came back from Edinburgh and everyone's like, wow, you did the fringe. And I'm like, technically all you need to go is money. Like it's a free access festival. Truly anyone on this planet can go. I think I went because I have grown up with the internet. All my comedy is internet related. It's, you know, it's insufferably online. Like I deal with memes. That's all Like that's all my shit. And I kind of just was curious to see if there was an audience that was bigger than what I was doing in Sydney and Melbourne and to see if um, the stuff I make online would translate on stage overseas to people from across the world, across different countries and that kind of thing. And did you feel like it did? Like, and, and this would be devastating so, if I was like, nah, man, I'm back and sitting. No, I'm kidding. No, I, oh, did. I mean, I, I assume that it would be a mixture of all those things, though. Like, I mean, yeah, some things that, you know, maybe work very well in Australia might not work as well overseas versus some things might work so much. Like, I mean, my experience of working overseas is quite often if you change the context, you can. Like a thing that, you know, might be an everyday observation to Australians when reframed as an observation about Australians to an overseas audience suddenly has a completely different context, right? And But I'm interested in, because you said, like, your view is a little more online, Mm. that's a global view of things. Like, people aren't necessarily talking about, you know, specifically to this country defined by an ocean around it, having to get on a plane to fly overseas to know their culture. This is a world in which, you know, I can tell you, you know, who every guest on British Taskmaster was. And so if I ran into those comedians at the festival, I could talk to them, you know, like 20 years ago when I started doing comedy, they would have all been strangers to me. Like, you know, so I'm interested in somebody who, as you said, your entire worldview has been like in this global internet 
I believe they call it the World Wide Web. Does that mean that there isn't those same, you know, cultural context changes? Does it have a little bit more, you know, of this, like, oh, no, this kind of works the same in Australia as it works over here? I honestly changed almost nothing about my material. Mm-hmm. And like going over, like I was with a couple of other comedians and they were like, oh, you know, I have to do like a UK pass of my script and essentially make sure all the references are the same. The only thing that fucked me up was I, I think I said cunt too many times. Mm-hmm. And for Scottish audiences, slay. But for UK audiences, maybe a bit much. I had some some Americans like walk out and they were like, that was a dis- disrespectful word to use. But other than okay. that. No, um, the Americans do not like it. Oh, absolutely not. They don't even like yeah. me saying Jesus. So I'm like, I'm stuffed. But actually, like I had a lot of like young women like from LA and from New York kind of in those comedy scenes and like I really like connected with them and loved performing to them but honestly I actually changed nothing like I found and I was really stressed for for some reason because I was like oh maybe like contextually it won't work but I found I was like oh I I already exist in this global world that's like so online that I've o- already been making my comedy for people who are inherently online anyway um so it was actually quite blissful and quite exciting to be like, I can just relax into this knowing that our shared language already exists. Everyone's fluent. Let's go. And how, so how do you feel about that idea of like, because it's, you know, it's just, I'm of like, I'm 50 in uh, January, um, which is either immediately before or after this has come out, who knows? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> but... <laughs> Which means that I lived the first 20 years or so of my life, you know, my adolescence and, you know, the kind of things that shaped me were really very much without anything that resembles what we consider to be, you know, modern day internet. That revolution has happened pretty much, you know, from when I was in my early 20s onwards. And we've seen like the enormous sort of ramifications it's had on completely reshaping the world. Whereas you're like, you're born into that world, you know, it was already... It's been part of your life the entire time. So you know no other world than the one that that has existed. Like, is it a world you feel like just at home in? Like, or do you feel because you've grown up in it? I mean, I think for people of my generation, there's a real push and pull around like, you know, the amount of online and understanding it and how it shapes us and how it you know, pushes and pulls us and in ways that we probably don't comprehend because we also remember the other way when it wasn't like that, where the book at the library didn't shout at you about, (laughs) you know, like, you know, so I guess I, I mean, I don't even know exactly what my question here is, but it has to do with the context of the world in which I guess, did you, I guess what my question is, did you choose to do comedy in that context because that's, the world in which you just naturally feel most comfortable and it doesn't actually feel like you've decided to do it in that context. That context is literally the world you live in. Yeah, 100%. Like it's all I know. It's the language I speak. Mm. Like it's so inherently me. Like I've been on Facebook since I was in primary school. You know, like I grew up on it. It's it's truly all I know. And I think there's like Our generation definitely feels the same push and pull because older generations are like, you know, like look at all the mental health effects like that this is having. And we still definitely feel that. But it's kind of like someone 
Like people always ask me, I'm 6'4", and people always go like, what's it like to be that tall? And I'm like, I, I have no idea what it would be like in any other body. Like I've only lived in this body. I've only experienced this. And like, like obviously there are like a lot of like negative effects and we can see those and we feel them firsthand, but I truly don't know anything different. And it's almost scary to think, it's, yeah, it's such a dependence that it's scary to think of any other world without it or that kind of stuff. I mean, the Vodafone shutdown really sent me. Uh, well, uh, let me ask you this then, because you then live in this, like, you know, um, I was just going to describe it with a very dated music reference. Go, wouldn't do have it. Felt See if young I can or get hip it. At all, but it. Well, it feels like a very Pixies or Nirvana style world that you live in where you are talking about making this you know, content online, but then you're throwing yourself into the world of live performance as well. So it's both extremely online and extremely offline, if that you may, because there's nothing more offline in a way than standing raw in front of a room full of people, like, you know, saying Truly. I'm about to put on a show for you and entertain you, right? So like even that has its own like push and pull, I imagine. Like what, 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 I mean, what, what do you get out of both? Like, tell me a little bit about that. I don't even know exactly what the question I'm trying to ask is other than I'd like to hear you talk about that. (laughs) I think it's interesting. I think people who have experienced the world without technology see it as like, um, there's the online world and the offline world. But for me, like they coexist all the time. Like you're sitting in a comedy show. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> if you get an Instagram notification, you're probably going to look at it mid someone's set. You're probably going to take, you know, a photo of them and post it as it goes. <laughs> you probably hate this. Like oh, I always say in my shows, you, like take as many photos, do whatever you want. You know what I mean? You're giving me shivers. <laughs> I don't like any of this. I'm not, I'm not here to judge, but I'm just, I, you've yeah. also got to let me be in my, oh, absolutely. In my space for this. Which it's is stressful. Like, yeah. But Honestly, Will, I think if you, I honestly think, Will, if you were like, guys, you can like scroll on your phones the whole time, they wouldn't. They'd watch you. Do you know what I mean? Like, they don't need, no one's going to take permission. I don't want to tell them that at all. Confiscated phones out of the building. I don't, I honestly don't think, I think if you're like no phones, like, I'm like, people are always like filming anyway. But I like, I think all my comedy is like, I do a lot of like AV stuff and I like retell, you know, stories about like what happened to me on Facebook Marketplace or like how I made money selling my feet and stuff. So I'm like constantly like blending the worlds together. And like, even though I'm on stage, I'm like talking about being online. But I think like we're never actually online. We're still in our physical bodies, like looking at a screen, you know what I mean? And that's exactly what I do on stage. Like you're seeing my physical body and we're both looking at a screen and I'm explaining, you know, this is how I made $2,000 off my finger toes. Like, um, but so I just kind of, I don't think, I don't see them as separate entities. I think we're constantly coexisting in both worlds and I try to bring that into my live comedy. I also think like there's so much, um, like especially with TikTok and the rise of like ADHD and queer people and women and that kind of thing. I'm like, I love content that is like really in your face, really internet savvy, really quick and for short attention span. So like having online content in my live comedy allows me to just keep people really, you know, I I want people to run to keep up with my shit. Okay. So, and this is where it gets interesting to me because there is a part of me that like wants to be, because I've, I've pretty much gone off all online, you know, I yeah, went off socials yeah. and I went off everything. I, That's I the dream though. That's like the celebrity dream. You know, I still want that. Like I, the dream is to become like, cool and famous enough that you don't need to be on anything. 
Well, my management run it all for me. So I still, as I said, I didn't make a big announcement about leaving. I just ghosted. Yeah, I just left yeah. my avatar, like, you know, yeah. plugging my shows and stuff still and I went away and I've loved it. And the real downside to it has been I don't want to be one of those people who constantly brings it up all the time, but it's very hard to not constantly because totally. you do feel a little born again. You know, there is this real thing of yeah, yeah. like it has changed the way I think, the way I connect with the world again, yeah. like all these sort of things. But also I recognize that there are things that I am missing from it if I'm being completely honest, which is that it, it is a place, particularly social media for me, was a place where non-traditional like media voices finally like were able to access like platforms where they could communicate, not just like, you know, like broadcast themselves, but find audiences of people who responded to the style of content that they wanted to make, which is basically what you've just said is like, here's a space that I could make the sort of thing that like appeals to me and guess what? There's a whole audience of people who totally. this style of thing also appeals to them and you weren't servicing them and nobody else was servicing them and yeah. the traditional format in which you work where you expect people to sit down for 70 minutes to hear one story <laughs> is like, <laughs> it's not for everyone it turns out, <laughs> Mr. Anderson. And that's like, I like, and I do, I, I, I am interested in that. Like, you know, in the fact that there is those places for that style of storytelling, like, um, do you think that, um, I, 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 yeah, how, how could I balance both? I'm now, I'm just asking for advice, I guess, but <laughs> like, I, I, I don't want to become, because I've stepped away, I don't want to miss, you know, seeing what, you know, is new and what people are into or hearing about people that I wouldn't have heard about otherwise. But yeah. how can I do that without, you know, all the negative things that I associate with like being on social media? I think you're actually living in a utopia that you don't realize because I see you as someone who is like, like you're on my TV, you've got a podcast that we all listen to. Like, you, do you know what I mean? Like in media, you're fucking everywhere. But as your human persona, like as not the avatar, you're living a blissful life, not connecting to any of it. And so I feel like you're actually like living the dream and you don't need to change anything. Okay, great. That's good. That's <laughs> what we all need to hear. <laughs> Nailed it. And also no I'm notes. like, you found, you've found your audiences, like you've found your audiences <laughs> in traditional spaces. So keep going there, you know, like accessible spaces are for people who need them. Like if you don't need them, don't fucking use them. <laughs> Fuck it. <laughs> Support I mean, him. It's, a, it's, a, it's a fair point, right? <laughs> Mate, if I saw you doing TikTok dances tomorrow, I'd be like, you know what? Unsubscribe. Oh, 100%. <laughs> like, I mean, there's also a part of me that has never wanted to be the like the person in the space that is making other people uncomfortable <laughs> that they're there, like at a party or a function or at anything. Like the amount of times of and look, and some of this is social anxiety that I must yeah. through other things, but – yeah, the, the amount of times that I've like turned down an invitation to some cool young person's thing where I'm just like, no one needs no one needs me there, you know? It's not me being there is not making this event more fun for anybody. So- <laughs> Bail out, watch from the internet. <laughs> Uh, so I um, ask people on this podcast more broadly if they have a life philosophy. Do you have a particular life philosophy? Lou surname wall. <laughs> Um, I look, I really thought I was like, oh God, I'm coming on philosophy. I need to think of a life philosophy. I'm 27 years old. Get it together. Like, mm-hmm. and then I couldn't, like, all I could fucking think of was that 
song that's like live fast die young <laughs> like oh, yeah. i I actually don't think I have a philosophy. Like, I have, like, morals that I live by. I think if I was to sum it up into anything, it would just be, like, be kind, I think. But I'm still searching for why I'm on this planet. Yeah, that's okay. So is it important to you to – because firstly – like live fast, die young, or was it live hard, die young? Live fast, die, die In young. In the song, it's like live fast, die young, bad girls do it well. <laughs> okay, so live fast, die young. You've already, you've, you're too old to die young. I know. Now. I've it's, got six sorry, months of my sorry. 27th year, so yeah. <laughs> the no, club no, no, is no. leaving you, me. <laughs> you might as well stick around. Yeah, you know? exactly. <laughs> so, exactly. Uh, but do you have any place in your life for meaning? Like it's a question that like I find the question itself like interesting in that like do you even prioritize meaning as part of like how you view the world like are you on the search for some sort of meaning are you looking for something I think like I grew up Christian and then I kind of um became atheist maybe when I was at uni like a very kind of normal pattern I think for a lot Mm. of people and then I kind of yeah I was really like adamant that Christianity wasn't the thing for me. And then I think recently I've like been like looking more into like spirituality. I would love to be religious. Honestly, I think I was happier when I was religious. Like the idea that I could just like pray, chill the fuck out and just be like, it's all sorted. But I'm not and I don't believe that. But my dream is to kind of find. Also, by the way, just my general experience of religions isn't that they just go pray, everything's fine. Hey. Like, you know, that's... <laughs> but that's what they told me they do. <laughs> I would love uh, to okay. find some kind of spirituality, though. Would you? So, you would I mean, because this is something you've explored, like in your work, is this idea of why people join groups or believe in things, oh, or like yeah. the nature of belief or meaning, right? Yeah. So. Like the idea that there's someone behind it all or something behind it all or some answer to the questions that we're all asking, that it yeah. makes more sense for someone. And like, I mean, you're ob- the obvious example we've all recently been through and, you know, for me, I always say, you know, the thing about the pandemic was I'd never lived through anything. Whereas for people of your age, it's just going to be one of those things that you live through in your life of, you know, all those other things that are going to happen, you oh, know, geez. whether it be yeah. like AI or, AI or the climate or whatever else it might be, you know, totally. it's just, you'll be like, oh, yeah, they were the good old days, the pandemic. Remember when <laughs> everyone believed there was someone in charge of it all? <laughs> it was like, you know, some secret group yeah. making plans, yeah. you know. Um, people like to believe in this idea of, you know, there being some sort of meaning. So when you say I'd love to be religious, I'd love to, like, is it because of that that you just like to believe that there is some reason for it all or would you find comfort in the idea there was some reason for it all? I think I'd find a lot of comfort in it. I think it would just take a weight off my shoulders that this life isn't meaningless. And not I don't necessarily believe that it is meaningless, but I think if like, I, yeah, I think it would just really like relax my anxious brain. If you found out now mm. that one of like, just say for example, what's what style of Christian were you originally? I was Anglican. Anglican. So, oh, there you go. That's, that is a very nice, easy <laughs> Sunday morning cup of tea, have a cake, Truly. you know, peace be with you. Truly. <laughs> Maybe yeah. that's why I, I mean, think religion's just like hot tea and yeah. cakes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. you got to get some of that Catholic guilt involved yeah. if you really <laughs> yeah, yeah, want to yeah. not enjoy. But yeah, okay. So Anglican, right? If it turns out that 
um, you know, what they believed was like all that's written in the Bible is actually, yep, yeah, they're the rules you have to follow and it's all true and mm. and whatever. Would you find that a comfort or actually, would you no. find that? Actually, no. Fuck no, fuck no. right? Oh, I don't know what I want then, I guess. I just want something else, I think. <laughs> Too much to ask? Is that too much for me to ask? <laughs> a little extra when spice, you, a little ghost or two, maybe here or there. Um, I mean, do you believe in things like that? Do you look for like? Have you ever had like a super like an experience that you can't? No, I haven't, and explain. I've been looking. I've been looking, but I haven't. I haven't had any supernatural experiences. And when somebody tells you that they've had a supernatural experience, like if, you know, a friend of mine often will tell me about like the ghost he saw or whatever, like yeah. what Honestly, do you say to that friend in real life and then what is happening in your brain and are they the same thing or are they different things? In real life, I'd definitely be like, oh, like that's like heck. Like I'd, I'd just like make them talk about it because like I'm like mm. genuinely interested. And then in my brain, I'd be like, they're at serious risk of psychosis. Like. Yeah. <laughs> Like, get the meds going. Let's get him into triage. Like, <laughs> But I'm, like, open to the idea that one day someone will describe an experience like that and I will believe them. Mm-hmm. I'd like to believe them. God, I'm a cunt. Oh, well. <laughs> no, no, no. I think that's, like, I mean, that to me is really interesting because I think particularly as someone who was religious and then went through that, like, you know, because, of course, if you've been told that one of these religions is the right one and the mm. answer and then you suddenly get to a place where you're like, oh, hang on, that, none of this, I've been, none of this really makes sense. Like, like even if there is some sort of, like, you know, higher being, it's like probably very unlikely that the one particular one that my parents raised me with in Kuma is going to be the one. That, oh, nailed yeah. it. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, right? Actually, like, no, now I remember I had this experience and in tr- it was at a church camp. And so, like, obviously we're Anglican. My dad yeah. is Catholic, but we're Anglican. And the pastor who came to the church camp was, like, kind of, like, a bit more, like, Pentecostal, right? And they did this, like, little sermon. And then everyone started thinking that they could, like, feel the Holy Spirit. Oh, yeah. And so everyone started, like, kind of shaking, like someone fainted. Mm-hmm. And then I started, like, crying. And in my mind, I was like, the ghost is making me cry. Like, and I really, like, truly felt it. And I remember my mom afterwards just came up and was like, now that was a bit much for you. I didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> Even mum was like... Even oh, mum was like, come on, don't yeah. don't bung it on. Like, <laughs> <laughs> And I think since then I've just been like, yep, it's all just drama, baby. <laughs> um, did you perform at these church camps? Were they like, were, were they those sort of things where they would put on a show? Yeah, absolutely. Of which I was always the star, never forget. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's the church's message. Truly. Elect one star and everybody <laughs> follow them. <laughs> Bunch of Christians and one atheist actor is what they're always going for. <laughs> Uh, you talk about um, like finding an online community and like that having some international, you know, and you talked about obviously finding a space within like the comedy community and where those, particularly those open mic rooms didn't necessarily feel like they were inviting spaces. Like I, I, I will have people contact me, you know, 
I actually ran into somebody at a it, – uh, it's funny that, um, yeah, sometimes you go, I'm offline so I don't have somebody hitting me up for advice anymore. But <laughs> the truth is it can still happen at the sushi train. So, <laughs> um, you know, you can run into people anywhere. And when I'm talking to people about what it's like to be a comedian now, you know, often they'll ask for advice and I can give some minimal advice but – the rest of my advice is completely outdated. It's like using the instruction from the TV from 25 years ago to, you know, program your TV now, right? Like it makes no sense. Like I don't know what the open mic scene is like. I don't know what comedy is like as an inclusive community. I follow the debates. I try to like listen to what people are saying and, you know, I, I've certainly in my lifetime in comedy seen incredible changes to mm. I think like the diversity and like – safety of spaces, but I don't really know because I'm not on the front line of it. Like, what's your experience of it? Just as an observation, like, you know, I'm not, uh, not asking for, I just, I would love, like, what's, what's your observation of it? Is it, is it a good space? Are the safe spaces only still the niche spaces? Is that okay? Like, I, I don't know. I would love you to tell me what you think. I think it's, uh, comedy rooms are just a microcosm of the macrocosm of society. Like, I think they're very reflective of what is going on. So in Melbourne, you have, like, a lot of queer spaces, a lot of, like, spaces that are, like, super, you know, accepting of people who are differently able-bodied and, like, accepting of comedy that is, like, a little wackier and that kind of stuff, but definitely with, like, a left-wing kind of edge and that kind of stuff and kind of no tolerance for any kind of, you know, fascism or right-wing politics or anything like that. And then... um you know, you also have like these spaces that have like kind of popped up in reaction to that, that are like these kind of underground, dirty open mics that are like, you know, will maybe not have a single woman on the lineup or a single person who isn't, you know, white, like, um, and will be, you know, people doing like crazy, like homophobic jokes or like transphobic jokes or that kind of stuff. And they have kind of popped up like in reaction to that. And like, you know, the minorities are always incredibly loud. So like everybody talks about the rooms that are like that. And everybody talks about the rooms that are like super lefty and super queer and super old. Um, but I think like for me, like comedy is a really safe space now. Like I love going into comedy rooms. I think there's uh, so much... And also this is coming from like a white educated person. So it's like very different for me than it is for a lot of other people. But like for me, I'm like, oh, there's hundreds of rooms that I feel right at home in and feel like a dream. I think in Sydney, everyone is hotter than they are in Melbourne, but I think they're funnier in Melbourne. <laughs> <laughs> I've okay. just moved to Sydney that's, and I'm like, wow, real... people can be hot and funny. Like that's crazy. Like we'd never have this, this down is... in Victoria. <laughs> This is some good stuff because that's what <laughs> Sydney does value. So Truly. I think it's very and everyone important. looks good in Sydney as well. I did the store last night and I was like, mm -hmm. oh my God, I got to put on maybe not shorts and thongs again. <laughs> uh, do you believe that there is a, again, because you work in this world of like both an online global view of some things, but then you're talking about this idea of like, you know, it's quite an old school view, right? Of like Melbourne versus Sydney. Yeah, what yeah, is yeah. like, you know, these two states that are next, these cities that are, you know, like, but there is obviously like, I mean, of course, like, you know, cities establish their own identities and they, you know, particularly 
art that is produced in those cities can be reflective of the city in which it's produced. So do you actually find the old cliche used to be, and this is a very old cliche, but the Sydney rooms were all established by the sort of Rodney Roods and, you know, audience heckling and them making very sharp, quick jokes. And there used to be a pace to Sydney comedy that like was probably the Melbourne comedy was more storytelling. You know, it could take its time to get to something whereas Sydney comedy was very, you know, just fast, fast paced. But I've certainly noticed with younger comedians that fast pace seems to be something that is part of a lot of new comedians because I think partly because of the online influence, right? Like you're trying to get like something across online in a very short period of time. Like nobody's thinking, oh, this will be a five minute piece or a 10 minute piece or a 20 minute piece or the way that, you know, when I was growing up, you you'd kind of conceive what you were doing. There's a lot of short shareable moments. And so like, I don't know if that's completely changed. Is so is like I mean, what's your observations? I think it like uh, inherently they're still very much the same. Like Melbourne is definitely more storytelling. Like Sydney is pretty like joke forward, like like that kind of thing. But I think like honestly, I actually just think a lot of young people and it, yeah, it's because of online. But actually, it's because we just want clips for our TikToks. We just want mm. a thirty second clip <laughs> for our TikTok to be filmed. So we're putting like we're writing jokes at like a faster pace, not a faster pace, but they're like structurally they're 30 second bits they're not like mm. two three minute bits but I think yeah definitely that's still the vibe of Melbourne Sydney I just kind of play into it because I like have lived in both and I love just like antagonizing an audience a little bit and just mm. being like I live in Sydney now fuck you <laughs> like um <laughs> but yeah definitely Melbourne I think as well like it depends on um, the comedy literacy of the audience. Like, I think in Melbourne, like, you know, people have seen a lot more fucking whack art. Like, they have huge, like, they have Vivid and they have a bunch of, like, you know, festivals that, like, do a lot of avant-garde art. And so people are, you know, more there for, like, a holistic experience. Whereas in Sydney, like, there's more, like, film festivals and, like, you know, I think audiences like, with places like The Store, um, which have been there for ages, like, they're ready, they want... You know what? They want comedians doing normal shit for five minutes. You know what I mean? Like, they want to see what's on the ticket. Like, um, they're like less experimental. But that's like exciting, you know, in both ways. Because if you show some Sydney people something that they've never seen before, it truly blows the tiny brains. Whereas in Melbourne, you could be like, this is like the most original thing anyone's ever done. And Melbourne will be like, yeah, cool. Saw it last week. Like, <laughs> Uh, so Sydney, why? Why did you move to Sydney? Was it because of the television? Yes, it was. It was. But I don't, I would maybe like to move back to Melbourne. No, I do love Sydney. It's lush. So you came for work. And so that work was um, a show on the ABC. See, for people who don't know about it, tell people what the show was and get, just give them the little brief, you know, uh, what what was the company line? What was the- <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to think of the company line. There's a reason they never yeah. put me on radio because I just swear too much and tell no one about the show. Um, no, um, it was called WTFAQ, and essentially, um, any question that is ungoogleable or that you need an answer to, you ask us. So the audience sent in thousands of thousands of questions, and then we answered them as much as we could. As ma- we answered as many as we could, and I would say it's kind of like. You know, some some were sketches, some were Mythbusters, some were songs. Like, you know, we just answered them in whatever way the presenter wanted to. Yeah, okay. So I'm interested in that process. So <laughs> that's a good description, by the way. Like, because what I wanted to get to, because when I first heard of what the idea of the show was, 
I think Cameron James was because uh, he writes on Gruen, and so yeah. obviously Cam was involved in the show, and. He was telling me a bit about the show and I was like, oh, so they're just going to go out and yeah, you're all going to be sort of essentially cub reporters like to go and find out the answer to this question. But then when I saw it, I was like, oh no, okay. Sometimes these are just essentially used as comedic offers or like you said, a big musical number about like, you know, what it might be. So how was that? Yeah. How was that creative process? Like of, did you just get the offer and go, I'm going to do this? Like, or were they putting together a show where they thought, oh, we want something that's a bit serious, something that's a bit humorous. Like that's how it works. Like, you know, what was, what was that creative? Uh, like, you know, how did, how did that all come together? I think um, they re- the producers really thought about the casting in that they cast six presenters of which some you know, preferred serious scientific stuff, some preferred comedy stuff. And so when we kind of got into the room, we kind of chose our question and then we kind of just went ham. Like there was so much freedom to write whatever you want. And like I ended up doing like a a song, a couple of songs, but one of them, Kirsten, who's one of the other presenters, it was a script on um, tubes, which is like a crisp, an Australian product. Um, And Kirsten wrote the script for it and it was like really scientific and, you know, really well researched. And then Kirsten had too many junk food, um, (laughs) too many junk food pieces. Um, You know, she'd done the checkout and they were like, oh, we can't box her into the Mm. junk food thing. Lou, do do you want to do it? And I was like, oh, I've never even heard of what a tube is. Like I'm a burgerings girl. Like, Mm. and so I kind of said as a joke, I was like, oh, I'll do it if you let me like write it into a rap song. And then they're like, yes. And then I was like, shit. Okay. Well, (laughs) I got to write this into a song now. And so I am, yeah, I just turned Kirsten's like scripts into a song, but they really kind of let us do truly whatever we want, which was the best process. Like it was so um, exciting creatively to be able to just take an idea and answer it in the best way possible for yourself. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a level of creativity that you don't normally get. Yeah, yeah. Anything really, like that idea of just saying, you know, what do you want to do with this? How do you want to answer this offer? It's it's fantastic. We um, talked about uh, religion before and uh, it brings me to a question I ask very regularly on this show, of course, which is like if you grew up with religion, then that means that you also grew up with the idea of like what happens when you die, right? Mm. Like that's part of – it's a fundamental part of religions. Like I, I would argue that among the top-line questions that religions answer for people is the question, what happens when you die? Yeah. So if you grow up going to church camp, doing shows, having <laughs> a pretty, you know, solid locked in, don't need to go to my phone a friend, I know what the answer to this question yeah. is. I'm going to go to heaven because I was the star of all those <laughs> church camp shows. I got the lead, therefore <laughs> I therefore, will get the lead in heaven. <laughs> it's right in the back of the Bible, but it's definitely there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> did you replace that with something? Like do you – like, what do you think? I mean, the the way I ask it on the show, I'll just ask it like I usually ask it, which is what do you think happens when we die? I haven't, I honestly actually haven't given it much thought. I reckon everyone dies, yeats, and is never seen again. 
Maybe except for me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that is the absolutely fundamental religion. Yeah. But most people think that they are the exception it's, to the rule. It's beautiful. <laughs> Ever, everyone everyone should dies. try it sometime. <laughs> everyone shits, everyone breathes, everyone dies. Except for me. I and do. then I, I, I realize yeah. it was all the simulation, but I'm also God. So I've put myself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it works, baby. (laughs) Uh, Do you think you don't think about it because you are young and like, you know, like generally when you're young, you feel a little invincible about the idea of life itself or do you just think you're not the sort of person who thinks about that? I I think 100% because I'm young and I think I'm invincible. It's also privilege. Like I haven't had many people close to me mm-hmm. um, die. Like I haven't, you know, been surrounded by death in ways that other people have. Um, you know, I'm not in a war-torn country. Like I'm just, I get to think about what I'm going to do on Saturday night. And so I avoid it at all costs. And, you know, maybe when I'm older it'll be more of a pertinent question. But for now I'm like... No, I got to decide what my favorite cocktail is. You know, that's the important shit. Yeah, well, that's okay too, right? Like, I mean, how yeah. do you balance? Like, I mean, because this is what we're talking about when we talk about meaning of life, right? Which is, mm. um, I can't remember who I heard talk about this recently, but they were talking about how ridiculous it is that we sort of judge life by the thing at the end, as if there's something we're all working towards, as opposed to the idea that this is it. Like, I mean, totally. how it is judged at the end is kind of based on what's happening right now. Yeah. <laughs> and I also so, think you can't change it. So for me, I'm like, mm. there's no point in worrying about something that I have no control over. Okay. Interesting. I guess. That, no, that's good. So so then what what do you think about? Like, what are you thinking about? Like, I mean, you joke about the, oh. like, you know, the what cocktail is your favourite, but maybe you're not joking about that. I mean, what is it that occupies your thoughts? Like, what is, if you were to, like, <laughs> list here are the things that I think about on a daily basis that I, I mean, I guess like, what I'm asking you is if, pondering the nature of existence and your own mortality, which is like basically how I feel my day apart from podcasts, Mm. is like, you know, I get that because I'm getting older and I'm getting to markers and milestones of my life by which you start to think about those things. Mm. Makes complete sense. In the same way as like it makes complete sense for you to not be thinking about those things. Like I would would like largely avoid it until you really need to start (laughs) pondering those things. But I'm interested then in all that spare pondering space that you have, what Mm. are you pondering? What do you think about? Like what ignites your passions? I am actually constantly thinking about, um, it's it's strange because it's it's, it's existential in a sense, but it's not about death. It's not nihilistic. Like, so I'm always thinking about what will happen to the earth. I'm like incredibly curious about what it will look like when I am 70 years old. Um, I'm really always thinking about environmental shit. Like that is a big pressing weight on my psyche. It has recently like kind of dissipated in a way where I'm like, oh, I like live in a first world country and, you know, I'm well off. So whatever I experience, I'll be fine. But I'm still fucking curious about it and I'm curious about like, how the world is going to dissolve into this like climate apocalypse. I think that has been pressing on my mind because I remember like in, I remember in like primary school, we were taught like 2020, like 2020 was like the cutoff for some shit. Like, I don't even remember what it was, but it was like, if we can't do this by 2020, 
we're all going to fucking die. And like, I just, I think that's like my main pressing thing at the back of all my thoughts. Like that's what I lose sleep over at night, which is silly because I'm like, by the time I'm that old, like I'm just going to die and the next people will have to deal with it. But I can't not think about it because it's been on my mind since I was like very little, I think. Yes, because that's how long we've known about it. <laughs> that's how, truly, that's, truly. It's when we should have been doing things about it. It was when we yeah. absolutely knew about it back then. Yeah, I can understand that for sure. But I do think that what you talk about around the climate emergency, which is this idea, I think other, you're not alone in the fact that it's gone from being super alarming to something that people have somehow rationalized or like, I, and it's and I don't think it's a good thing that this yeah. is happening because I, I think it's partly I think to do with the pandemic and we couldn't handle everything at once and somehow it's like made people less worried about or like maybe they're still as worried about climate change but they've just kind of resigned themselves to the fact that they can't do anything about it like I don't understand but I don't think you're the only person who's like readjusted like it in their list of like how they think about it. It used to be almost in my mind like an intense Mm. threat that me and my generation had to fix. Like we had to fix it. But almost as I've aged, it's like we'll leave it to the next generation, which is so fucked up. But it just feels, I think it feels too out of my control. So now I'm more curious about it and less threatened by it, I guess. Wow. Yeah, okay. Well, good luck with that. Thank you so much. <laughs> I will need it. <laughs> so what? Okay. So now maybe in, that's in why the, I live fast, die young, because I don't want to think yeah. about it too much. No, no, no. That makes a lot of sense. That makes much more sense. So good luck with that. Is, is the worst thing you can say. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye and good luck. <laughs> it's uh, it comes from you will not remember any of this, so I'm going to have to explain it. But uh, there was a TV show called Sale of the Century. It was a TV show. Oh, you remember that? Okay. Yeah. My mum used to watch it. Yeah, famously hosted by Tony Barber, but it had a series of hosts and one of them was a guy called Glenn Ridge. Glenn Ridge had a famous tell uh, when he was doing his banter with the uh, people at the start of the show in which he would, uh, they would all go along the line and it would be like, uh, Will's here today and uh, uh, Will would like to one day do a stand-up tour of Alaska, right? And Glenn would be like, oh, Will, you're a comedian? Why Alaska? You know, blah, blah, blah. We're here with Lou Or Lou, um, you know, blah, 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 blah. That would be like what would happen. But if the person's thing was too unlikely, right? Yeah. So it would be like Lou wants to be the first person to do stand-up on Mars. Glenn yeah. would always just look at them and go, Good luck with that. (laughs) (laughs) Distancing himself of all responsibility for when failure is inevitable. (laughs) I like that. So, yeah, that's where good luck with that definitely comes from. It's very funny. It shook us out there, it feels like. (laughs) So what do you feel like, though, then? So when you talk about the idea of relegating that then to the back burner a little Mm. without wanting an unintentional pun, like what – what is filling your mind? Like, is it things that bring you joy? Is it distractions? Is it like, is it other pressing world issues? Like what, what's, what fills that space? It's definitely, definitely pressing world issues. I think my brain space is like a reflection of what is like currently happening on my Instagram. So at the moment, like all I can think of is like, um, you know, the Israel-Palestine 
conflict and what I can do without centering myself. And like, it's always, it's very narcissistic, but it's always about like what I can specifically do without um, (laughs) how I can do the right thing, what I should be doing. Should I be silent? Should I be talking about it? Like I'm constantly thinking about that. And there seems to always be a humanitarian crisis that I, I guess like my thoughts like revolve a lot around um, activism and if I should have a voice or if I shouldn't have a voice. Now, I'm super interested in this. Like Now, obviously, we're recording this, um, you know, before people will hear it, at, like in the timeline. I, look, there's a real chance they've sorted it out, Israel and Palestine, and everything's okay by the time people hear this. <laughs> Good luck out uh, there. <laughs> Uh, but no, I, I love what you're talking about, which is this idea of when is it appropriate for you to have a voice, when is it not appropriate for you to have a voice as like a straight white man, like, well, straight enough white man in the, you know, middle-aged Australian man. Like, you know, you speak about privilege and the privileges that come with that and the understanding of those privileges and you are constantly, you know, thinking about this idea of, the space that you take up, how you share that space, how you leverage your like power in those spaces versus like would it be better for you to, you know, not be there and let that space be filled by somebody else or is there more value in you being there and like opening doors for other people? How do you balance that? When is it appropriate for you to speak up and not speak up? And I don't say that as complaints in the way that somebody would say, you know, I, I, you know, the world's confusing and I don't know what to say anymore. I say it more as these are things that you, you know. It's you, a genuine you, concern. You, you, you explore. Yeah. You're just thinking about, yeah. right? Like, you know, you're trying to like get your head around, you know. So, so yeah, talk to me about your, your experience and what you referenced there, like about when you feel it's appropriate to, or necessary or needed for you to – you know, step in. I certainly noticed since I've been off social media, there hasn't been a time when some shit's gone down where they've like, you know what, Will, we've just got to call you back for one more rodeo. We need your (laughs) opinion and your hot take. We think this is what will actually fix it up, you know, if you could just come back and give us your – but again, like, or is that me abdicating my responsibility as a public person to like weigh in on something or have a voice on, I mean, by the way, there's plenty of other fucking places people can hear me have a voice. (laughs) I don't think people are short of hearing me bang on about stuff, but, but you know, it's something I think about a lot. And so when you think about it, like what, what do you think about and, and you know, what are your thoughts? I think about it so much. I have, I don't have a specific answer for you. I think it depends on, what the issue is like I really struggle with activism I struggle with what I should be saying I struggle with what I shouldn't be saying I think I'm like chronically online I'm always like promoting shows and stuff so I always think oh like you know I should absolutely be like posting infographics and stuff and almost as soon as I do like I'll have people in my inboxes like arguing with with me or that kind of stuff and I don't like interacting in those spaces because I'm not educated enough on it and I don't think I'm the voice. I just kind of want to be a conduit or a funnel to help people access resources that, 
you know, they might not have otherwise been able to. But it's something that I really struggle with. It's something that I think about every day. Like, you know, I have friends who are like massive influencers who are like, you know, taking some time off social media for their own mental health. And then as soon as they do that, people will be like, why aren't you speaking up about this? Silence is violence, you know, and all that kind of stuff. As soon as we speak up about it, then you have people coming in just being like, this is not your place. Stop centering yourself. Um, so I have my now kind of like uh, philosophy around it is just to uh, work silently. So, you know, like donate if you can, go to the rallies. I don't, ha- I don't now, now I don't feel like I have to post about like everything I do because I understand that my audience knows, or I hope at least they know that I will be doing the work behind closed doors and that's enough. And if people need to see the receipts, I can show them the receipts. But it's a, a constant struggle and it's something I think about all the time and I always stress about being cancelled, <laughs> um, which is silly because probably everyone is thinking about that themselves and no one is actually thinking about me. Well, yeah, okay, interesting. So this is the the interesting thing about how much like your audience drives you, right? Mm. And how much you are presenting content to your audience or like what it, you know, however you want to describe it, like you're presenting that to your audience, but how much is your audience allowed to be the person that shapes who you are, what you say, what you do, both when it comes to issues, but I often see this like, and again, this is old man external observation. So uh, forgive me the nuances of all this, but I, sometimes feel for young people who come through online and get successful doing i've seen creators who i've enjoyed a thing they did they came up with a conceit or a or whatever it might be that people latched onto and they enjoyed and they ended up having to just do that basically over and over and over again and every time they tried to do something else they were clearly I'm thinking of one person in my mind at the moment, but I'm sure it's like analogous for a broader conversation, which is every time they tried to do something else, people would be like, yeah, fine, but we don't want that. We want this other thing. And then, you know, it goes back to that original conversation we had about, you know, you writing a show and then presenting it to the audience going, here's what I think. This is like my heart or my brain or whatever it is. And it's all here. And this is like what I wanted to show you versus like letting, you know, like, Sometimes is is not online feedback Friday night at the store giving you notes on the joke. Like I mean, yeah. that how it's, you balance, you know, how much your audience leads you versus how much you lead your audience. It's so difficult online because, like, if you bomb at a gig and the crowd was drunk and rowdy, and maybe it was like nine pm on a Friday, it's like your brain can be like, you know what, fuck those guys. Like that was, you know, like I did my material fuck the audience. They weren't my audience, blah, 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 blah. But when it happens online, when it happens in comments, they're preserved forever and you can read them as many times as you want and you convince yourself that they are your audience when actually they're not your audience. You can also see like if you post something that is like slightly different to what you normally do or you're taking a new direction and your followers go down, like you immediately well, we all immediately see it as a failure when actually that's not a failure. It's like you're just finding a more authentic audience. Do you know what I mean? And you're going to lose people along the way anyway. You just wouldn't see that in a comedy show. You know what I mean? Like your ticket sales might be like 
you know, slightly down from next year, but then you'll have a hundred other people who find you from a different thing that they liked more. But when it's online and you can see, you know, the count going down or the hate comments coming in, it just, it feels like failure when it actually isn't. You're just shedding yourself of people who, you know, we're never going to be fans of your everything anyway. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a, a very healthy way to look at it, which is, I uh, you know, I think that's absolutely true. You're trying to find, you know, the people that are going to enjoy what it is you do and let you be your fullest self, hopefully. Mm, hopefully. But, but I often see it manifests itself in the complete opposite direction, which 100%. is the audience so ends up shaping the, you know, or people cynically will make that choice because yeah. there is also that, right? You could lean lean into something online in a cynical fashion to yeah. garner audience. Totally. And it's it's that really difficult, like, like I think, like as a performer, I have a, a lot of respect for my audience. Like I fucking love them. I know that I'm only where I am because of them. Do you know what I mean? I'm like, they are the reason that I can do what I love. But um, when I'm online as well, it's hard to – you know, you can, you have to accept, you know, like the, all, all these people, but then you're like, Dave is like commenting, like, fuck you, women aren't funny. And you click on his profile and it's like, he has three followers and you're like, his voice wouldn't matter anywhere else except online when he can like hide behind that anonymity. And you know what but I mean? Does it matter online? Like, is it, a, if a tree falls in the forest, like, I mean, again, like I'm, I'm asking, I'm not like, preaching yeah, here yeah. I'm, I'm literally curious i it, it don't, doesn't don't matter an but it behind feels like it matters do you know what i mean yeah so why like i mean this is this i and again i'm curious at this like is there just not a because like i guess the prism that i and again i really want to be clear i'm asking out of curiosity but i'm just prefacing this with no, where yeah. my question comes from like is me being offline it coincided with me releasing my book, my special one on the ABC, blah, blah, blah. I never found out if people liked them, didn't like them, anything, yeah. right? Because I'm just not there. Yeah. I, I would hear anecdotally things about, you know, how much something sold or like feedback or whatever, yeah. but I don't even know if like people were telling me the truth or not. The, like I, yeah. I, ne I never investigated it. And like it was all fine and like those things were either liked or not liked by people and, you know, so is there an equivalent of online? Because online obviously rewards engagement, right? Yes, like yeah. like, like mm -hmm. the, the entire algorithm of online, like real life doesn't have an, an algorithm that, and when I say real life, of course the internet is real life for <laughs> like a person of your age, but like <laughs> offline life doesn't have an algorithm that encourages people to argue with each other, like to yeah. for something to be successful. Whereas online does, it's built into the very process of like, you know, people know that their clips will take off often if people are arguing in the comments. So Dave, who says, fuck you, women aren't funny, who's probably just a bot program to say, fuck you, women aren't <laughs> funny and create an account with three people yeah. anyway. Like why... Why does that matter? Like, is there a point now where there is so much noise anyway and mm. that every clip and everything's going to have, like, that in there that, like, it doesn't matter? That, it, that the, like, it doesn't actually matter, does it? I don't think it matters at all, but it's really difficult to um, differentiate things that matter from things that don't matter when it's online. Like, yeah. I think, and your your brain immediately goes, oh, negative feedback, you know what I mean? And, like, I, I value comments, like, because you know, when I first started, like I, 
only my friends were commenting. So of course I value comments because I'm like, you know, everyone knows me really well. They love me really well. Everything they say is like, you know, a reflection of our friendship and a reflection of all of that. And then it was like, you know, people who are my first fans. And then now it's like, it's everyone. So yeah. it's very difficult to distinguish them. I completely agree that it doesn't matter. Like, who gives a fucking fuck? Like, you know, great traction. Thanks, Dave. Like, up me, boost me in the algorithm. But it is like the struggle is that it's difficult um, for you to differentiate and for you to take care of your mental health in deciding whose who's voice is important and whose isn't. Yeah, okay. So online and mental health is, I think, a, hmm. an interesting area because like, part of the reason that I like stepped away from being online, not the only reason, but it was like in the mix of like the dozen reasons that I had, mm -hmm. all good and compelling, <laughs> and I can bore you with at a party if you're a person of my age who'd like to hear about them. But I, um, <clears throat> one of them was like, you know, the effects that it had on my mental health and like both in that you just like, you know, as I said, like I'm not seeing my friends argue with each other. I'm not seeing people that I like, like have, you know, different opinions and then call each other names and all these sort of things. Like I'm not even seeing someone I like. I can enjoy a sports person playing in a game because I didn't know he said some terrible thing that I did, like wouldn't yeah. like. But vice versa, I can enjoy my friend who I actually like because I did not see their ridiculous opinion they had about some other thing, right? Like it's actually yeah. – it's been good for my mental health to be offline. But also we talked earlier about attention span and there's been like – a. There's been a rise in particular, as you referenced earlier, ADHD diagnoses that like are probably, you know, various factors contributing, you know, more aware of it now. Like there's, but there's been correlations obviously have been between the amount of time people are spending online and what effect that might be having on their mental health in regard to that as well. Like, do you think that your generation, because mm. I think the ones in between, like you and I, were the ones who like went into it not knowing, like we didn't know there was any negative side effects. Like yeah. we thought this was all going to be great. Yeah. You told us this was going to be the greatest <laughs> yeah. thing ever. Whereas it feels to me that your generation like are fully aware now that like smoking's no good for you and like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you shouldn't drink soft drink every day. And by the way, yeah. like being eternally online has like can have like these flow on effects for your mental health. Like yeah. do you feel like that is the case? What that there are bad shit that, happens online. No, that, that there is an awareness of it, of your, like, do you feel like younger people are more aware of the negative things that are associated with being eternally online? Yeah, absolutely. I think especially like my age group who kind of, you know, I say I was always online, but like I didn't, I wasn't an iPad kid. Like I didn't have an, you know, didn't grow up watching YouTube. I grew up watching the television. Um, I think like, for example, I say I'm chronically online, but like at the moment, I am not on Instagram and I haven't been on there for like, I think maybe like a month, month and a half. And, you know, during festivals, I'll be on it like all the time. But like I take really long breaks. I go cold turkey. I kind of treat it like, you know, like an addiction almost because that's like for me what it is. But I'm online in other ways. Like I'm on TikTok. I'm on YouTube. I'm on like different like platforms. But I think... I mean, we definitely know that there's a really negative side effect, but there's almost no alternative um, for people who grew up with it. Like there's no, um, uh, the vision of what it was like without it doesn't exist. So it's almost impossible <laughs> for people to be like, oh, it's so much better without it. And you're like, well, what the fuck did that look like? You know, like, 
<laughs> how did you wake up without an iPhone? Like, what do you mean you had a digital clock? Like, it just doesn't, like... <laughs> and almost, I think a lot of the people who are talking about, like, the negative side effects about being online are giving absolutely no resources or forethought into how to get people off it. Do you know what I mean? It's just like, it's bad, it's mm-hmm. bad, it's bad. It's like, well, cool. What do we do with that information? Like, go cold turkey on Instagram for a few months a year? Like, everyone I know is doing it. You know what I mean? Uh, does it feel like the rise of AI? Because one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot is like, you know, it was the rise of re- review culture, really. Like, you know, this idea that everything needed to be rated. That that yeah. to me has been the major kind of broader psychological change in what the world. What do you world. mean that everything needed to be rated? Well, everything now is like, yeah, leave a love heart. Like, what's this oh, out of true. five? Leave oh, yeah, your yeah, review. Yeah. Your like your your oh, comment or your voice that. is like like necessary to this conversation. That's what we've been told by yeah, the internet. Group thing for yeah. engage. Yeah. Your your voice is very important right now. And your opinion is as valid as it like it's very valid. Yeah. Like it's very valid. But obviously AI now is going to be able to like, you know, the, the rise of the I won't like I'll check out the Yelp reviews, mm-hmm. you know, of going to that restaurant. Well there's if there's any point to doing that now, because most of them are written by, you know, bots and marketing companies for most big businesses anyway. Like AI is going to mean that you're never going to be able to tell what a good review or a bad review of somewhere is anymore because they're just going to be mass produced and all those things are going to be flooded. So in the same way, do you think like there is a point where there's so much easily produced propaganda and negativity and, you know, all these sort of things that it almost blasts through those things having any value again and there there is a next evolution of that like like because you can't just keep being more and more reviewed surely like is there a point where ai actually makes the idea of if you can write a perfect like comedy review of your show <laughs> like by using chat gpt like you know hey chat yeah. gbt in the style of steve bennett from read all of <laughs> like read all of chortle and then yeah. in the style of steve bennett write me a review for my latest stand-up yeah. show write me a five-star review for my latest stand-up show yeah. and then you quote that on your like poster or like online or whatever and people can access that review does that then just completely mean that reviews have no value anymore or like comments have no value anymore because you don't know what is created what is, by a human yeah. and what is not anymore? I mean, I'm not sure in terms of reviews because that feels like a very specific thing of like a human's opinion of um, art, which is subjective. But I think in terms Yeah, of- but a review, like everything's reviewed. Rest, like you can't go and get your hair cut these days without you getting a little message from your, your hairdresser to go online please and give them a review stars. about yeah. your haircut, right? Oh, by the way, please rate this podcast five stars <laughs> on whatever right. platform. I mean, but that's, you know, like, I mean, I can't start a video on YouTube. Like, I'm still on YouTube. I, like, watch a lot of stuff on YouTube. And YouTube's great. um, I'm on YouTube a lot. But, like, a lot of the time, you know, the first thing that I see in the video is they say, before we get into it, could you hit that, like, yeah, yeah, like and review and rate and subscribe? and Like, it's the top message. Yeah. The top message is to do that, right? I think AI will inevitably, like, kind of – 
encompass and swallow everything. Like, mm. I think it will take over every strand of humanity it possibly can. And I'm not scared. I'm just like, well, we'll deal with the consequences when we get there. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think it's almost inevitable. Like, it's on that track right. already. It's unstoppable. <laughs> um, also, like, fuck, if they can take my job, I don't want to work. Like, I want to be a comedian, but if I didn't have to do anything, like, <laughs> I want to lie on a beach. Yeah. And if AI can take over that, great. <laughs> like, Yeah, but Lou, that's what they always sell you. They sell you the idea that everyone's going to be laying around on a beach. And you know what? I love being sold to. Late stage capitalism rules. <laughs> It's working on me. I will take it and live my ignorance is bliss life. Uh, you know what? You know what? I don't want to burst that bubble. It's good for you to live there for a little while Please longer. Please keep it intact. So, um, I'm going to ask you a question that Kurt Bronola asked of Pete Holmes on Pete Holmes's podcast. I like to give it the proper attribution. I just like this question. Uh-huh. Would you prefer to know, because we've explored you know, death and the fact that you have not thought about it that much. So this is purely a hypothetical question, you know. Um, so just a thought experiment, if you will. But okay. would you prefer to know when or how you die? If you had to know one or the other, would how? you prefer to know when or how? How? And do you think if the way that was the how was not something like, you know, oh, you know, like uh, heart disease or some some sort of common thing. Yeah. Uh, if it was something unusual, get hit in the head by a hammer, for example, yeah. would you never would you never go to a Bunnings again? Would it let you affect would you affect like anytime you saw a hammer, would you like leave the room? Like would you let that knowledge affect the way you lived your life, I guess? I think inevitably it would affect it. Like I'd uh-huh. be like, I'm fine, but I'd see a hammer and I would flinch. But I think yeah. it would be like, <laughs> I think it would kind of be exciting. Like it would be a bit like spice of life just being like, well, I uh-huh. can't avoid it. So if I die today, that's like slay that it's in aisle four of Bunnings. Like let's fucking go. Like, but then like also like every time you avoided it, like you saw a hammer and you didn't die, you'd just be like, yeah. Another day down, boys. We did it. Like, I think it was so fun. Like, <laughs> it's like a game. I mean, life is a game anyway. Like, that's fun shit. Yeah, okay. I like that perspective. I'm glad I asked that one. Now, what is the best or worst piece of advice that you've ever received in your life? I don't even – I have no idea. Think, no idea. Okay, no. let's let's walk through this. Okay. Have you ever had a like a good piece of advice? Is there something that stuck with you that somebody else told you that you thought was it could be to do with how you live your life, it could be to do with how you perform your craft, it could be to do with how you form friendships or respond to people or anything. It can be good or bad advice, but I like like I like hearing bad advice, but good advice is probably an easier place to start because people tend to remember good advice more than they remember bad advice. Yeah, I feel like I've received a lot of bad advice that I've just like yeeted into the non-existence of my yeah, psyche. Yeah, that's okay. But that's probably healthy. Yeah, most likely. Not as entertaining for me because I love hearing about bad pieces of advice that people have been given, but I, I'll, I'll settle for a good piece of advice. Um. I had, I don't know if this is necessarily advice or not, but I had a mm. therapist who was like, I I think like 95 years old, like, like mm-hmm. inexplicably old for someone who was not retired. And she did not believe in depression. And at the time I was seeing her for treatment of depression. Okay. And she used to just tell me, she was like, oh, if you're ever feeling sad, cook a minestrone. And I thought mm. it was the worst fucking advice. And then I started doing it and... It really improved my diet and uh, my mental health <laughs> randomly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, like I would 
like I'm not saying they'd be the only person I need to go to, <laughs> but like if I could like incorporate a practical therapist into the rotation of therapists that I talk to. Absolutely like, a I practical think, therapist she was. <laughs> I just like sometimes I'm like, yeah, no, it's great that I sat in that chair and like yelled at myself and made myself cry or whatever it is that we've done today. But yeah. <laughs> like just give me a recipe or something that'll take my mind off shit. Legit. Like, so, Legit. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like she would have told me how to iron my pants or something. So that was that was really good. And then the, I guess like the piece of advice that I always think of is um, it's really boring, but it's like if uh, ta- hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. Um, and just the idea that even if you, you know, have a gift from God or like, you know, you have mm. mega attributes that you still need to continue to put in the work. Why do you think that, um, where do you think those attributes do come from, right? Like, so if Lou Wall has particular attributes, if you were put on this planet in whatever way you want to interpret that <laughs> to, you know, contribute in in the way that you've chosen to contribute to this world, mm. like, what? Yeah, I mean, what is that? Like, what's that? <laughs> what, you know, what is that? Like... Like why, where does that come from, do you think? Why do you think the way that you're contributing in this world is to, you know, make comedy and entertain people versus like, you know, work in the hammer aisle at Bunnings? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think it's what I'm, I think it's like what I'm good at. Mm. Like, and I think like lots of people are good at different things and maybe it's not, maybe there is something out there that I'm better at, but I just like haven't found it yet. Um, Uh, I think in terms of where it comes from, it definitely comes from like my parents and their value of comedy. But like, I I just love making people happy. I was in a, um, I was in the dementia ward the other day. One of my beautiful family members is, um, sick and they had woken up in hospital and they have, they, they previously had dementia. They have dementia they didn't know why they were there. And I just scrubbed off the entire, you know, MRI spine shit. And I just wrote boob job. So every time they woke up, <laughs> they thought they'd just got a sweet new rag. And it was just like, I don't know. It was just like the highlight of my week because I was just like, fuck, it's bleak. But I'm like, at least right. I can like bring like a little bit of joy. <laughs> uh, if you could wake up tomorrow... You don't have to do your 10,000 hours. You just wake up tomorrow and you have this particular skill. It's mm. any skill in the world. You can interpret that, you know, however you want, but you're good at something. You're just able to do a thing that you've always wanted to do or that you would quite like to be able to just do. What would you love to be able to just do? I'd love to be really good and understand everything about like trading, like especially cryptocurrencies and just make a oh. fuck ton of money. And then really? retire. I think so. Because I don't understand yeah. that at all. I'm like such uh-huh. a bimbo in terms of that like side of the economy. But Okay, yeah. Well, basically, I'll, I'll just run you through it right now. <laughs> you, so like this thing that I'm giving my hand, that's a pyramid. And <laughs> <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> This is just school, man. You're just my teacher. <laughs> um, the question I was going to ask you is uh, um, where can people find you? Like for people who are older philosophy podcasts, 
uh, people who don't know, you know, where to find you online and what you're doing online. What can we, well, firstly, we can direct people to ABC iView where they can uh, watch episodes of WTFAQ uh, and they can check out all that stuff. There are clips on it, uh, clips from it that I imagine all over the internet as well, um, shared all over the place. But if they want to find Lou Wall, Specifically, where are they going to find you, Lou? Um, on Instagram and Facebook and YouTube at Lou Wall. So very difficult. <laughs> Three L's. And uh, what are they finding when they get there? I have on YouTube. I have a bunch of um, shows. In lockdown, I decided to turn my comedy shows into feature films and film them in my bedroom. So there are a couple of those up on YouTube, and then on Instagram, you can see me posting infographics. <laughs> <laughs> It's great content, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's been so nice to have you in here. Thank you so much for coming to do the show. I really appreciate it. But uh, before we go, I have a standard question that I like to ask at the end of these, uh, which is, if I had a time machine and I could take you forward in time or backward in time, one round trip is what I offer on this time machine. You can go anywhere. You have no obligations to the world. This is my only proviso is that you don't need to go back and like solve climate change. Firstly, here's what I would tell you. You could go back and tell people about climate change and what they'd be saying is, yes, we're aware of this. We're just going to ignore it. Uh-huh. So that, that firstly, there's no place you could go back to. But like the other way I like to say is um, you don't have to kill baby Hitler. Right? <laughs> okay, 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 okay. <laughs> okay, unless your particular passion in life has always been to kill a baby <laughs> or kill baby Hitler, then fine, you can go and do it. But uh, you can just do something for you. What would you like to do? So when I was born, um, apparently they had to vacuum me out and I had this really fucked lump on my head and I looked horrifically ugly. And my parents will never not tell me how horrifically ugly I was when I came out. Now, there's no photos of this and I think they were lying. Um, And so I would like to go back to that point and just see if I was super fuggo or if I was like still kind of cute. Interesting. And with that information, all I do is bully my parents. I mean, look, I, when I said you can make it personal, I didn't realize how micro we were going to go on the whole personal thing. But um, I, look, I mean, I didn't want to uh, talk about, um, you know, you referenced being tall earlier, like, oh, you know, yeah. and like, as, like, I mean, you're taller than I am. And I kind of went through most of my adolescence being considered like a tall person, you know, back in yeah. my day. And, and you're taller than I am. And I have quite a, uh, hunched shoulders, bad posture because I was quite ashamed of like being the tallest and always wanted to, you know, fit in around my friends. And like, I kind of was like, I mean, we went past it and I didn't really want to like back back over it. But like, I am interested, like <laughs> I realized before we finish this conversation in like, what is it like to be, I mean, for like you're tall for someone like of, any identity, right? Like yeah, you're a I'm tall really person. Tall. You I'm stand really out tall. in any room, yeah. in any space, you're a tall person. Yeah. Like how much did that – have you always been tall? Like was that, were you always the tallest person like yeah. you know, in your classes and stuff? I've always been the tallest. Up. I think my mum put me into kindy early because I I was really tall and I looked like I was like years older than everyone else. So she just threw me into school straight away. I've always been the tallest. Um and then I hit another growth spurt when I was in 
school. I probably played like a lot of sports. Like I kind of did everything tall people kind of do. I'm like the shortest in my family. Like all my brothers are much taller than me. <laughs> I don't, I, I, it used to really plague me in a way that like everyone's plagued by their, you know, their differences in high school kind mm-hmm. of thing. And I can't go a single day without someone telling me I'm tall. Like if I'm out in the world, I used to, when I would work a cafe job, I would have this little tally and like, I think the average a day was like three people telling me like, oh my God, you're tall. People around me get really mad when other people come in on my height. I don't really like care because I know they're not doing it. Like, mm. you know, I know it's not a mean thing. Um, no, no, they're surprised. They're, they're not actually they're saying tr- it to you. They're yeah. saying they're, they're saying what they're thinking yeah. out loud in that moment. They yeah. don't actually think they're the person informing you that you are a tall person. <laughs> Sometimes I'll be like, oh, my God, no one's actually ever told me that before. This is crazy. Thank you. Thank you so thank much you for letting me know. Truth-telling <laughs> is very important. And thank you for being honest with me. Thank you for saying what no one else is saying in this world. Um, But I truly, I don't know. Like I think about it constantly. I, but now I think if you'd asked me up until maybe 25, if I could change anything, it would always have been my height. Mm. Like I just want to be normal height. But now I don't really care. doesn't really bother me too much. I am constantly frustrated that I um, didn't, you know, go for a career in basketball and all that kind of shit. But like, I don't know. Also, the best thing about doing comedy is like you're on stage by yourself. So there's no, no one can reference you against anything else. You're just there with a mic Mm -hmm. stand. So no one really knows that you're that tall. (laughs) Right. If anything, it's like a perspective thing. Totally. Like I went and saw Roddy Chang and there was like six and a half thousand people there and I was up the back. He looked tiny. Short King uh, <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I've had a blast. Listener.